Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And when the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore, and your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed." Because you have obeyed me. And then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off to Beersheba together, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, that was a mouthful, and we all have a lot of questions, don't we? Um, In Genesis 21, the promise that God made 25 years prior is finally fulfilled. And Sarah has a son, and they name him Isaac. And we've talked at length over the last couple of weeks about how God was preparing Abraham and Sarah during that 25-year period for blessing. They weren't ready for blessing when God first called them, but through the formation of their hearts in the wilderness, they became ready to experience God's blessing. So waiting in obscurity was a necessary part for them to be ready for all that God had in store for them. So now as the reader at the dawn of chapter 22, now that God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham, we're sort of left to wonder, is Abraham's journey of faith over? Has has he arrived at a place of faithfulness? Now, 
now that they have received the promise that God had given them, are they just going to sort of like ride off into the sunset happily ever after? That's the question. And uh, that's probably how we would write the story, but the story of God is not a rom-com. Like there's more to it than that. There's lots of different layers as it turns out. As it turns out, God is just getting started with Abraham and he has several more chapters of faith building in his story. So here's what I see in the text that I think you will see as well. The faith that God grew in the wilderness, he tested on the mountain. The faith he grew in the wilderness, he tested on the mountain. And Genesis 22 is one of these crazy Bible stories that if you are a parent, I know many of you are, you do everything you can to not put yourself in the shoes of Abraham and Sarah because this is about the worst thing that you can imagine, sacrificing your own daughter or son. And yet that is the exact situation that Abraham and Sarah are in. Dr. Tony Evans calls this story believing God in the backdrop of the ridiculous. And I think that's a really, <laughs> a really apt description. And our job is just to be wise students of the Bible and put it all into practice. We want to live this out together. So in verse 1, uh, we're told that this is a test, a test of Abraham's faith, which of course begs the question, why does God test our faith at all? What is this about? Hasn't Abraham been through enough at this point in his life? Why is God testing his faith? Well, first of all, uh, the test is not God being cruel. Don't worry, I'm going to back that up. But Abraham had failed multiple smaller tests earlier in his life, which we really haven't had much time to talk about. But he, uh, for example, lied about Sarah being his wife twice. And he sexually abused Sarah's servant, all because he was wavering in his faith. It's a very, un, a, not a good look for the people of God. And why, why is this happening? Because essentially Abraham is questioning God. Maybe God won't do as he promised, and maybe I need to protect myself in case he does not. So that is the weakness or the failure of Abraham, which happens several different times in his story. But despite Abraham's failures, God still holds up his end, right? And uh, he holds up his end by giving him Isaac. And now God is calling Abraham up to a new level of spiritual maturity. God is calling Abraham up to another level of spiritual maturity. And this is what the Lord is all about in our lives too. Whether, wherever you're at in your life with Jesus, whether you are new to faith or whether you have been walking with Jesus for 50 years, he is not done with you yet. He is still forming you. And in America, we've, uh, we've been sort of caught up in a culture um, that is all about our own comfort and that is actually all about entitlement. But the Lord is calling you and me up, and he wants to form you deeply from the heart. So he knows what your redemptive potential is. God knows how he wants to bless you, and he wants to bless you with great spiritual blessing, and he wants you to become the kind of person that he can trust with great spiritual responsibility and authority. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And the testing of your faith is just more preparation. It's more preparation, and it's the proving ground of your complete obedience and utter trust in God. And before, Abraham's faith had been tested, and he failed. But this time, Abraham's faith holds up 
to the scrutiny. It holds up to the pressure, and he's greatly rewarded. Not only that, as you probably already sort of put two and two together, Abraham's obedience points to God's ultimate sacrifice to redeem and save through the cross of Jesus. And we're going to get into that too. So here's how the story goes. God initially commands Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So the Old Testament, if you're new to the story of the Bible, is filled with stories about animal sacrifice, which is a little bit out there for our culture, fair enough. But in ancient Israel, uh, animal sacrifice was deeply symbolic and it was very integral to worship. And we've already seen this at least twice before with Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4 and also with Noah in in Genesis chapter 9 after his family was saved by God through the ark. Now, people would offer these animal sacrifices on an altar. And there's all different types of sacrifices, but burnt offerings were often examples of what's known in theology as, uh, as substitutionary atonement. Don't worry, there's not going to be a quiz, and I'm not going to geek out on you for too long. But essentially this, the animal uh, in a burnt offering was innocent, but they would die as a substitute for the sins of the person who was making the offering. So it's kind of a graphic, gruesome, symbolic thing that's going on with animal sacrifice, but it's meant to emphasize the just tragic effects of sin. And it's meant to emphasize the great price uh, in order to make things right, and it also highlights God's power to forgive sin and to purify the world. But never in the story of the Bible had there ever been a person that was offered as a sacrifice and as a burnt offering, and there is still only just the one, and that's, of course, Jesus. But I want you to notice the similar language from when God first called Abraham in Ur in Genesis chapter 12. We get, as we study the Bible, we get good at noticing the repeated themes. Notice in uh, what it says uh, in chapter 22, Go, and I will show you. Go, and I will show you. This is a word-for-word copy from Genesis chapter 12, when God initially called Abraham and says, Go, and I will show you. And Abraham knows what this means. Abraham knows that God has been leading him and guiding him all of these years. And he knows it has been his job, his responsibility to just follow where God has led him. And now is no different. If God calls me to go, I must go. And just like before, just like all along, Abraham had to obey without all the details. He had to obey without all the details. This cannot be overemphasized in the story of God. I love in our culture that we need control. And in our culture, we like to have the whole game plan, the whole strategy, but this, make no mistake, this is a hallmark of Abrahamic faith that becomes the gold standard for the people of God throughout redemptive history. Abraham must obey God without all of the details. And if God gave Abraham all of the details, then it wouldn't be a test of his faith at all. Right? What would that be if God gave him all of the details? Well, it would be much more like a business partnership or something like that. It would be Abraham double-checking with God and then endorsing his work. And I'm sorry, but there's just no place in the Bible at all that suggests that that's what biblical faith is all about. In fact, we've got hundreds of examples that this is the model, the gold standard of faith, when it doesn't make sense. God's not looking for investors who agree with his 
like strategy and five-year plan. He's looking for people to bless. This is, this is, we have to get this. What is God doing? He's looking for people to bless. And he blesses people who trust him because he moves at the speed of trust. When you trust me, I will bless you. When you trust me, I will bless you. When you trust me, I will bless you. This is how God has set it up. And because covenant promise is all about relationship, the foundation of relationship is trust, therefore this is how God sets it up. This is the same in your life as well. It's no different with you. Next it says this, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. And he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. I love that. So what does Abraham do? Well, he obeys. There's a whole sermon series in this little section of scripture. He gets the materials together for the offering, and they hit the road. And on the third day, after hiking and and walking for several days, he lifts his eyes, and he sees Moriah off in the distance. In other words, he saw the place where God was leading him, and he purposed in his heart to get there. He was fixed on what God had commanded of him. And we cannot let this go by without noticing that sometimes God calls us to places that we do not want to go. In fact, if you ask Henry Nouwen and his interpretation of Jesus when he's speaking to Peter after his, res- after his resurrection, that actually that is the sign of spiritual maturity, is the degree to which you are willing to give up your own preferences and go where you would rather not go to serve those you would rather not serve. That is the mark in the language of Henry Nouwen, quoting Jesus on spiritual maturity. Sometimes God calls us to places we don't want to go. It's off in the horizon, and we are called to be faithful along the way. Notice he doesn't turn off to the right or to the left. He doesn't stop short of full obedience. He doesn't try and escape the trial. Instead, what does he do? He embraces the fact that God is leading him to someplace he'd rather not go, And he's embracing that trial as a way of God perfecting virtue, perfecting his character. Now, careful reading of this text reveals that Abraham is hopeful that he's not actually going to have to go through with the sacrifice. And that is something that we should key in on here. First of all, he tells his servants to wait for them at the base of Moriah, at the base of the mountain. And after that, he says, and then we will go and worship, and then we will come back. Not I will come back, we will come back to you. Wait a second. God commanded you to offer Isaac. Yes, very true. But also God promised that kings would come from Isaac. So Abraham is admitting, listen, I do not have all of the facts, but we'll be back. Resisting a Terminator pun right there. But um, also, <laughs> I love that the laugh came like 12 seconds later. I so wanted the laugh. I was just going to wait for it until it came. Also on the way up to the mountain, it hits Isaac. He's like, wait a second, dad, okay. I'm carrying the wood for the offering. You're carrying the fire. You're carrying the knife. But where's the lamb? Like every other time we've gone to worship, we've always brought a lamb. Where's the lamb? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. This is, by the way, the first mention of that term that we've grown to love, Jehovah Jireh, the provider God. Yes, like the worship song, the provider God. So what's going on here? Is, is, is Abraham just sort of lying to his son to buy time or whatever? 
Or has Abraham's faith grown since the last time he was tested and when his faith failed? Three days is a long, day, a long amount of time to be hiking and be on the road, praying and meditating on the faithfulness of God. I think what's going on is that Abraham this entire time is deeply wrestling with what God is asking him to do and trying to reconcile that with the promise that he made. And I think these are the conclusions that Abraham's coming to after his many years of formation. You know what? God's got options that I don't know about. God has plans that I don't understand yet. God has power that I haven't fully experienced yet. See, what I think is happening is that the work God has been doing deep within Abraham's heart is beginning to transform his perspective to the point where he's the one who's beginning to give God his new nickname. He's Provider God. Abraham's the one who gave God that name. He's Provider God. He's going to give us a land. And that's exactly what the New Testament tells us happens to him. Check out Hebrews chapter 11. This is the hall of faith, if you will. And um, Abraham, again, is sort of held up as the gold standard of faith in the New Testament as well. It says this, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Genesis 22. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So Abraham reasoned. He reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That's good. So he did not have all the details, but he did embrace the promise. He didn't have the details. He did embrace the promise. And he reasoned, the Bible says he reasoned, that God is capable of bringing the dead back to life. So in other words, what he's proving to us is that we do not need all of the details to reasonably believe that God is capable of the miraculous. We don't, because we have, instead, we have trust in him. We have his track record. We have his word. And you might ask, where does this faith come from? Where does Abraham get this kind of faith in order to stand up to this kind of pressure and scrutiny? Well, uh, I think... Not only does the, does the Bible give us that answer, it also gives us how then we can get that same sort of faith. I think this is where Abraham's faith is coming from. It's coming from 25 years of formation in the wilderness. Remember, God made the promise to him. He said, as, as, as numerous as the stars are, so shall your offspring be. Imagine being a pre-scientific uh, era type human, watching the stars come out each and every night and wondering to yourself, what is all of that? This, is, this universe or this world that we're living in is so profoundly beautiful and complex and mysterious. And that's exactly what he's noticing. And as the stars begin to pop out, he's like, you know what? That's right. God made me a promise. He made me a promise that my offspring are going to outnumber these, uh, these stars. So his faith was strengthened through the years of adversity and obscurity. Number two, it came from Abraham's many failures. This is where his strong faith comes from, his many failures. He had years to reflect on his failure, and he learned from how it went wrong when he took matters into his own hands, and he disbelieved. I think we learn more from our failures than our successes. I'm going to talk about that more in a second. It also came from his experience. Remember, he had seen God perform miracles before. Sarah's womb, the Bible tells us, was dead. Abraham's body was as good as dead. 
And yes, scholars mean what you think that means. He wasn't performing. And yet, somehow, Isaac is here. Isaac's here. So God brought Sarah's womb back to life, and he did a very, very improbable miracle. And so Abraham is reasoning on his journey up Moriah. That is not fun and is a place he does not want to go. And he's saying, you know, if God did that, if he made my wife's womb alive after it had been dead, he can also provide a lamb and spare my son. And listen, this is what God wants to do in your hearts as well. He wants to form our hearts too. And it may be very slow and very gradual, but that's exactly how character formation works. We don't become a saint overnight. We, formation is a process. And I've talked to many of you who right now feel like you're in this deep grind of life where you want to grow, you want to be out on the other side of your wilderness journey, and yet you're still in it. And I would just humbly submit to you, formation is a journey. God is with you. He hasn't left you. And submit to his leading. And I think he knows what he's up to. Number two, uh, yeah, he's forming your heart. He's also wanting uh, us to remember our failures. We want to forget our failures. But again, I think you can learn way more from your failure than you can from your success. Success often goes to your head. And honestly, most of us are not, our, our, our heart and our character is not ready for real success. But when we reflect on our experiences, when we reflect on our failures, we end up growing in our faith. And that's exactly what happens with Abraham. He says, oh wait, when I tried to put matters into my own hands, it went this way. And it was not the way it should have gone. And I deeply regret that choice. And now instead I'm going to trust in the Lord. And I'm going to see God move in great power. And that's exactly what happens with Abraham. I think it's what he wants to do with you too. Three, remember the small miracles that God has done for you. Let God's faithfulness throughout your life influence your faith for the journey that's still in front of you. As it is the case with Abraham, God has him climbing bigger mountains than it was 25 years ago. There is more faith, there is deeper faith, there is greater victory that God is bringing. But we trust in the reality that, you know what? This is a big mountain that I'm climbing, but God has been faithful before. He's gotten me up the smaller mountains, and I'm still here. So I can trust that he's going to carry me through. See, God's done incredible things for me in my life. Uh, way, way too many to count, some of which I'm going to share with you before we're done. But I just want to believe him for bigger and greater things for my future. And I'm not saying that in the way that our culture says it, in like a manifest destiny kind of way. Like, that's not it at all. But you know what? Actually, God's made us a series of promises. And that is that he wants to form our hearts and that he wants us to uh, like sacrifice along with Jesus and actually become people of great character. And he wants to bring, I believe, a... Uh, another awakening to the Western church. And I think he's inviting us to be a part of that. And so we are committed to this and we believe that this is what God's calling us into. I was reading uh, an article uh, this week about uh, a man who I've, I think I've quoted him once before, but he's a no-name failed church planter from the 19th century. And he actually became uh, connected with Charles Finney and he ended up going ahead of Charles Finney everywhere he went in the great revival that Finney led. And he was the prayer warrior. His tombstone says, a, uh, a, a company uh, of, of Finney and strong in prayer. 
And I think that is a great example of who we want to become. We're happy to be no-named. We're happy to be forgettable. But we want to see God's kingdom exalted and glorified on the earth. Think about David. David, when the entire nation of Israel's warriors looks out at Goliath and says, no way. He says, you know what? The, 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 the shepherd with a slingshot. He says, you know what? God gave me victory over the lion. God gave me victory over the bear. So I trust that God's going to give me the victory over this Philistine. And that is the kind of thing that I'm, t- that I'm talking about. Uh, uh, Abraham's faith is progressing, and our faith needs to progress as well. So when Isaac says, Dad, where's the ram? Abraham says, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. I, there, the Lord will provide. I have, I'm clinging to a promise. I'm anchoring myself in what God has said. This is a repeated theme throughout Genesis. I think it's extremely important for us to embrace this promise and embrace that reality. Next, um, Abraham follows through. He follows through. He sets up the altar. He binds his son. He raises the knife. But then the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. Now I know that you fear God. Now there's tons of study on this passage. Uh, It's available on this section. We're not going to get into it because we don't have time. But just one quick observation. This is Abraham proving his loyalty and his love for God. Abraham is passing the test at the center of all of life uh, with him and God. He's basically saying, will you choose me? over the thing that you love most in life? Will you choose me over the thing that you love most in life? See, God is after your heart. Many, many years later in the story of God, remember someone, the rich young ruler, as we call him in the Gospels, approaches Jesus, and he basically begins to brag about all of his great religious acts. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, so what's left for me? What else must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says this. He says, sell all of your possessions Give everything that you have to the poor, and then come and follow me. Why why does Jesus say that? Because possessions and wealth are inherently evil and bad? No, not at all. Because Jesus knew the man's heart, and he knew the idol in the man's heart. And so he put his finger on the exact thing that he cherished too much. So what's the question, or what's the thing that God cannot have? Because you're too attached to it. Guarantee you 10 out of 10 times, that's the exact thing that God is going to ask you to bring and put on the altar. The thing that you are too attached to, that you won't give to God, it's the exact thing that God is going to say to bring to the altar. It could be materialism, like the rich young ruler, but it could also be a relationship. It could also be your work. It could also be a a childhood dream. It could be a lifestyle of sin. But what we see in Abraham is God God is now able to celebrate his man and bless him and truly reward him because finally, after all of these years, probably almost 40 at this point, He's able to say, Abraham has rightly ordered love. There is nothing that if I ask him, 
he will hold back from me. And that's exactly what God is looking for from you and I. Rightly ordered love. It's him first and foremost. Now, like I said at the top, this isn't God being cruel. He didn't actually want to kill Isaac. He didn't want Isaac to die. And he didn't make Abraham do it. God was using this moment to prove Abraham's love and then also to transform Isaac. I think this is as much for Isaac as it is for Abraham. No one talks about this, but I think this is as much for Isaac as it is for Abraham. Abraham only had a few short years left. He's probably close to 120 years old at this point. And Isaac is going to be the next generation. Isaac is the one who's going to be the carrier of God's blessing and promise. The same promises that applied to Abraham are now going to apply to Isaac. So God uses Abraham's compelling witness of faithfulness to shape Isaac's heart. Now it's Isaac's turn for him to be shaped by God. So God, this is what God wanted. This is what God wanted. God wanted Isaac to see his dad walk by faith. That's what God wanted. God wanted Isaac to see true worship and sacrifice. He wanted Isaac to understand the true cost of salvation. He wanted Isaac to see the miraculous provision. He wanted to actually bless Isaac. And because of Abraham's obedience, Isaac was transformed. And Isaac was, one, was actually greatly rewarded. He's, the, the story begins to transfer now to Isaac. And his father showed him the way because of his radical obedience. Now, not all of us are moms and dads, but the moms and dads in the room, this is very important. Also, if you're not following after Jesus, or excuse me, if you're not a father or mother yet, but you aspire to be one day, or if you're just in the community of faith, by default, your kids are being pastored into an American culture of comfort and entertainment and entitlement by entertainers, influencers, and now AI algorithms. They're by default being pastored into that. And they need you. And they need us, the community of faith, to pastor them instead into a life of radical obedience and utter dependence on God. This is the precise mountain that we are climbing. This is the mountain we're climbing. This is the mountain that we're in front of you. Our kid, your kid, do not need you to get them another iPad. Our culture is aggressively forming them into the culture of itself. What you need to do, what we need to do, is offer a compelling alternative witness. A compelling alternative witness that God is worthy of your kids' loyalty and trust. How will the next generation know? How will they know that following Jesus is a compelling alternative to amusing ourselves to death, as Neil Postman puts it? How will they know? By our lives of radical obedience. Radical obedience and faith in God. You guys know the story. This happens at the last second. God stops Abraham, provides a ram caught in a thicket, and they offer it instead. And because of Abraham's complete obedience, because Abraham did not withhold a single thing from God, Isaac encounters God on the mountain. Think about that. This is your power as fathers and mothers. This is your leadership as Christian leaders. Because of Abraham's obedience, Isaac encounters God. And Isaac is present with God when God re-blesses Abraham and repeats the promise. And this is how his story of faithfulness 
this is now becoming his story of faithfulness, not just his dad's story of God's faithfulness. This is what you want for your children. This is what we want for the next generation of Jesus followers, and we need to give them a compelling alternative witness. Is anyone excited about that, please? Thank you. All right. So Abraham's complete obedience is a gift to his son, and whether or not you have children is not the question. The question is, will you complete the obedience that God is asking of you before you receive the provision or all the details? This is Abrahamic faith. This is Abrahamic faith. Will you complete the obedience that God is asking of you before you receive God's provision or all the details? And of course, this time Abraham passes the test because he's now fully surrendered to God's wisdom. This is not something that could have been said of Abraham 20 years ago, but his faith has grown through the process of formation and his life with God. He passes the test because he's fully surrendered to God's wisdom. Now, I think that um, the same temptations that Abraham must have had, we also have in our culture today. The temptation that we face when uh, there's an opportunity to surrender fully to God's wisdom is uh, the alternatives to fully surrendering is uh, complaining. It's complaining. It's stopping short of full obedience. It's demanding details. It's disbelieving God. It's choosing to trust myself instead of him. And it's self-preservation. These are the things that battle against our surrendering God in our hearts. We all have it. It's the, what the Bible calls the flesh. Complain, stop short of full obedience, demand details, disbelieve God, trust myself, and self-preserve instead of surrendering completely to God. But the reward is there for those who fully surrender and who trust that God will provide. That's who the reward is for. The reward is for those who will trust in God to provide. Now, if you know the story of the Bible, you know that there's also something else, very important, very big that's going on here. This story foreshadows the gospel when Jesus faces the ultimate test by going to the cross. Mount Moriah became the place where God commanded Solomon to build a temple in Chronicles, and it's also where all of the offerings and all the future sacrifices were made. They were on Moriah, the Temple Mount. You can go there today. And it was also within eyeshot of a place known as Golgotha, the place of the skull, the hill where Jesus carried his cross. Isaac carried the wood for the offering. Jesus carried his cross up his own hill, and there he actually died and sacrificed for the sins of the world. And we get a drama of what, God, what Jesus actually experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is deeply troubled. He asks his disciples to pray so that what? They may not fall into temptation. And he begs the Father that they would not have to go through the cross but he ultimately says, not my desire, not my will be done, but your will be done. And that very same night, Jesus is arrested, and the following day, he's killed. So what is the story of the scriptures trying to say about Jesus when you put it into the context of Genesis chapter 22? Who is he? He's the lamb. He's the lamb of God who, in the language of Isaiah and John the Baptist, takes away the sin of the world. He is the ultimate atoning sacrifice. He is the true offering. And Abraham and Isaac, who knew none of these details, they knew none of what was going to happen when Jesus came to earth and died. Thousands of years prior, they were dramatizing the story, which is at the absolute center of redemptive history. 
And this is to their glory and honor that they were willing to play their part in foreshadowing and prophesying about the redemptive history. Now, in the case of the ultimate test, the father actually goes through with it. He actually goes through with the sacrifice. He does what he did not even require of Abraham. Think about that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is a rip on Genesis 22, or also Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son. What did God do with Abraham? He allowed him to spare Isaac. But he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So Isaac is spared, but Jesus is not. Now there's a leadership principle that I'm sure you know well. I've heard it dozens of times, and I purpose in my heart to live by it myself in my pastoral work. And the, and the principle goes like this. Don't ask your people to do anything you won't do yourself. Don't ask your people to do anything you won't do yourself. Why does that principle like deeply resonate with the heart of, of, of people? I think it's pretty simple. I think the reason why is because it's how God leads us. This is how God leads us. Abraham knew what it was like to go through the agony of putting his son on the altar, but the Lord takes it even further. He was willing to sacrifice his own son for you in ways that he will never and does not ask you to sacrifice for him. He did, as I said at the top, the most unimaginable, tragic thing you could possibly think of when it comes to your kids, and, and he does it because of his love that compels him so that he can open back up Eden for us to come and enjoy him. So anything we offer God does not compare with the sacrifice that he made for us. He's saying, don't worry, Abraham, you don't actually have to go through with it. You don't actually have to offer your son. I will offer my son in your place instead. He will be your substitute, and he will bring you salvation. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. He said, I saw, my, I saw, or Abraham saw my day and was glad. He said, he, 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 he saw the, the future fulfillment of all of these promises. So your faith in the Father's love and Jesus' death and resurrection is evidenced by your actions. See, this is something that we have a hard time reconciling in the New Testament church, especially because we've been indoctrinated indoctrinated with decades of what's known in theology by not me, someone much smarter than me, as cheap grace. So what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. When in reality, James and Paul and the writers of the New Testament say that faith without works is dead. And what, what he means by that is that the promise of salvation is available for you and you cannot earn it. You cannot earn it. But real faith is evidenced by your actions. You know, Billy Graham used to always use the example of the chair. The chair. Which is, hey, if you believe that the chair can hold your weight, when you sit down on it, that is when your faith becomes actual. And the same is true in our faith with Jesus. Thank you, Billy Graham. One of the greats. 
God has tested our faith multiple times in, in the last couple of years, and it's possible God may be testing your faith too. I just wanted to briefly encourage you a couple of things that we've seen God do in our life as he's tested us over the last 10 years. And by the way, there's a few tests that are going on right now that I don't think have the emotional maturity to talk about yet. They're still unfolding, so I'm not gonna tell them to you. I am gonna tell you a few things, though, and it's a little bit risky for me to do so because for some of you, this might actually make you think less of me. For others of you, it actually might make, me, make you think more of me, and that is not my goal at all. My goal is to simply testify of God's faithfulness and what he's done. So about a year and a half before we planted Riverbend, uh, my wife and I were pregnant with twins. Many of you guys know this story. We lost Hope and Brielle at birth. And I'm not saying that this was a test that God put us through. I'm not saying that God wanted this for us. I still think it's just a part of the evil, broken world. However, it does make you ask those questions. If God is good, if he's loving, where is he? This is the test of our faith in that time. And I'm so happy to be able to stand here and tell you that that event and what we went through, the grief and the suffering of losing our daughters, did not make us weak in faith towards God. It actually eroded our, our faith and our confidence in the American dream. There is no dream for us, for Grace and I, on this side of heaven. A good friend of ours said, it's like God pulled your heart halfway there to heaven. And I think that's a really apt description. What we have come to realize is exactly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. All that counts is the new creation. This doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. All that counts is the new creation. So we are very much at peace with our daughter's death, but we will not be whole. We will not be complete. We will not be content until the new creation. So our attitude is this. Our attitude is this. God, you have an assignment for us. We will do that faithfully till our dying day, but let's get on with the new creation already. We're ready. We want resurrection. Let's get there. No version of the American dream could ever come close to satisfying us. Another thing, about two years before we planted the church, we were in preparation. And for those of you who are like new to church or new to us, when you plant a church, much like when you start a business, I'd imagine, I've never started one, is that you don't know where your paycheck's gonna come from. <laughs> and uh, so when you plant a church, you really don't know where your paycheck's gonna come from. And you have a lot of hopes, you have a lot of assurances, you, you have people in your life that wanna be generous and support, but, but at the end of the day, you don't know if you'll actually be able to sustain a living and feed your family. And uh, around, around this time, we had just sold our first house. And um, we had a little nest egg, what you would roll over into another house, we just had for a couple of months. And as we were praying about God, we don't know where our finances are going to come from to sustain our life in Bend, Oregon. We felt very clearly God say to us that he wants us to give all. All that we had to the work that he wanted to do through the ministry of Riverbend. Now, I am, let me be very clear. I am not saying that I think this is a good idea. Nor am I saying, this is horrendous financial advice. In fact, we went and spoke to all of our mentors at the time about what we should do about it. We feel like God is telling us this, but it seems like a really cavalier decision for our personal finances, and we couldn't get a single one of our mentors to agree with us that this was a good idea. However, wise mentors as they were, they said, you know what? 
This is what we would say to you. However, if you firmly believe in your heart that God is actually asking you to give all, empty your account and give it all, then you ought to obey. You got to obey the Lord. And so in a manner, that's exactly what we did before we planted the church. And it, it was a, at the time, it felt like a really big mountain. It felt like a really big mountain. And yet we knew in our hearts that God was asking us to do that. Now, again, I'm not saying you should do that. I'm not saying it's good financial advice. It is definitely not. But if God is speaking to you and commanding something, then you do it. And we have, on the other side of that decision, have received so much blessing, both financially and other ways, that I could not describe to you if we had an hour. But I can tell you this, that because of God's faithfulness, not because of anything that we did or whatever, but because of God's faithfulness, we are living well above our means because of the generosity of God through some very dear friends of ours. And we see that as God's blessing and God's generosity to us through our dear friends. And that's exactly what it is. One last story of how God has tested our faith in the last couple of years. Um, a few years back, right at the tail end of COVID, I was recruited, uh, I was recruited to come work for megachurch. This is the first time I've talked about this publicly. It's been a couple of years now, but um, I was recruited to come and work for a megachurch. And um, man, at the tail end of COVID, it just feels so nice to be wanted by, I mean, it is brutal. COVID was brutal to the church, not just us, but all kinds of churches. And it's really flattering to your ego when, when someone like that reaches out and says, um, hey, why don't you come work for us? In fact, it's about the only thing that I can imagine in my role would ever be a promotion, right? Where I get to go to this other spot. The last couple of pastors who had been leads there both had book deals and were sort of celebrated leaders and everything else. And so we entered into a discernment process of prayer, elders and our community and some people very, very close to us who we consider to be mentors, and we just began to discern. And every time I walked into that church for more conversations and preaching and stuff like that, I started looking around like, man, this is nice. They got a whole team to get up on the roof and deal with the snow. Like, the, the pastor doesn't have to do that. That's incredible. And there were all kinds of things that, again, flattering to my ego. There are many things that, wow, that seems really nice. If I took this job, I wouldn't have to do X anymore. But the more that we prayed, the more it became completely clear what God was actually calling us to, which was to give our lives away to the church of Bend. And we felt like God was saying, it catalyzed our heart for our actual calling. And it became really clear it would be so disobedient for us to take the easy road and go take a different spot that would flatter my ego, but would in the end not be good for my soul at all. And it would be disobedient to the call that God had on my life instead. And what I remember hearing from God in that time, this is many years ago, a couple, two and a half years ago now. Um, I remember hearing God say, be faithful to what I've called you to and do everything without grumbling and complaining. And I have grumbled and complained to my wife at least a couple of times. So I have failed the test in some respects. However, I'm delighted. I'm delighted and so beautifully blessed and rewarded for saying yes to what God asked of us. Again, there's many more stories still unfolding I don't have time for and probably not emotionally ready for. But God is worthy of our full and utter devotion to him. And this is what God wants to do. He wants to call you up. 
He's calling you up to a new level of spiritual maturity. And we need to do exactly what Abraham did, which was to, number one, embrace the promise. Remember that? Hebrews chapter 11, embrace the promise. He says, I don't have all the details. This doesn't add up from what I can tell. None of this adds up, but I'm going to embrace the promise and do what God said regardless of whether or not it feels good to me. Number two, embrace the trials. Embrace the trials. Remember James chapter one, consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, when you face various trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. This is what your formation process is for, the perfection or the perfecting, the maturation of your soul and your leadership. And that's exactly what happens to Abraham. It will happen to you as well as you follow him faithfully. Also, remember God's faithfulness. This is the second most common command in the entire Bible. The first one is to fear, uh, to fear not or do not fear. The, the second most common command is remember God's faithfulness. Call to mind actively the things that God has done for you. Um, it's that line. Uh, in fact, it's in a modern hymn as well. Uh, the Ebenezer Stone. Remember what God has done for you. And then reflect on your failures as well. What is the one thing historically that God can't have because you're too attached to it? Guaranteed, that's exactly what God wants you to bring to him. Also, cultivate a life of intimacy with God. I think this is how Abraham is capable and able to trust God is because he has cultivated a life of intimacy through prayer. That's why he hear me go on and on and on and on about practicing the presence of God in your ordinary everyday life. It's why we're reorganizing a lot of our church's ministry around seeking God's face as a matter of first importance. And we will not stop. Because a life of intimacy with God is what gives you the holy confidence to be able to trust God when it doesn't make sense and when it feels crazy. And I guarantee that it will. It's how it's supposed to be because that's how God is and that's how he set it up. And then finally, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You are not being, there's not a knife over you in the sense uh, that it was for Isaac or for Jesus. But we are called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices in Romans 12. Very few of us are ever going to be asked to be martyred for our faith if you choose to stay here in the United States, at least in this decade. However, we can offer our lives as sacrifices to the Lord. And this is your opportunity to become much more like Jesus. Now, I want to end with this final thought. This is a reflection that I pray over you as a blessing. God calls Abraham to obey him in a way that feels impossible, seems impossible. However, Abraham's actions in Genesis 22 reminds us of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And that is, my friends, what real maturity in Christ is like. Maturity in Christ makes other people see your life and think of Jesus. When you're mature in Christ, you live in such a way that they go, that's actually a lot like Jesus carrying his cross up the hill of Golgotha. Abraham and Isaac had the honor and glory of imaging Jesus to us thousands of years prior. It was a prophecy. It was a type of Christ. You have that same opportunity. But you have to expect that it's going to come at great sacrifice because that's what maturity in Christ looks like. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we just want to say thank you 
that you have been good to us and you sent your son Jesus to do what you don't even ask of us. And I just want to pray for my friends who are right now going through a period of testing. And the testing that you may be going through feels like it's too much for you, like it must have felt for Abraham. And I want you to just picture yourself going up that hill of Moriah, not having all of the details, it not making sense. And I want you to remember who Abraham says God is. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the provider God. And I pray that over you as my sisters and brothers. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come right now like you promised. And would you provide what we need for today to persevere and endure right now for the testing of our faith and would we be counted worthy to suffer with you and suffer like you and to be called to the kinds of sacrifice that you Jesus were called to that when other people see our lives they would say dang that looks a lot like Jesus' life We say that knowing that it will require something of us. And we want that courage. We want that boldness. And I just, church, I just give you courage right now in the name of Jesus. As the Spirit of God falls on you, I give you courage. The word encouragement is just that simple statement to give courage. And that's what we see and believe God is doing for you right now. And the only thing left to do is to respond in praise, to adore him for the things that he has done for us and for the great sacrifice he made. So we're going to sing together. We're also going to come forward to receive the bread and cup. And so do that now during this next song. Lord, we bless you and praise your name. Amen.